Welcome back to Creative Talks Commercial Real Estate Podcast. In today's episode, I invited Jim Costello, Senior Vice President of Real Capital Analytics. Jim is one of the most popular guest speakers at major commercial real estate conferences. I have heard him speak many times at different events in New York, and I always find his presentations very insightful. When I first started my podcast, I wrote his name on the list of people that I want to invite to be on the show. So I'm so happy today that he is our guest. And in this episode, he gave us an overview of the U.S. debt market, how the lender composition in this downturn is different from the last downturn, distressed debt, which is a topic that a lot of people are interested in, and also the overall economy of the United States. This podcast is for informational purpose only. The content is not intended as investment advice. Views and opinions expressed are those of the presenters only. So now let's get started. Thank you so much, Jim, for being the guest of Creative Talks Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Do you want to give a quick background of yourself so my audience can get to know you a little bit more, and then we can dive into the overall U.S. debt market? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, thanks for your kind words, Benjamin. Thanks for having me here. You know, my background: I've worked in the analysis of commercial real estate trends since the early 1990s. I spent a lot of time with uh, two professors up in Boston, Ray Torto and Bill Wheaton, with their Torto Wheaton Research Group. I'm now in New York working for a company, Real Capital Analytics. We look at the flow of investment capital into commercial real estate properties worldwide. And what I've really been focusing on recently is the nature of the downturn and flows of capital into real estate and. Where capital is not flowing into real estate and what that means for prices.、Mm-hmm. So, why don't we start off with an overview of the U.S. debt market, and then what are some of the transactions that you're seeing right now in commercial、sure. real estate? Yeah, it's interesting. The flow of debt into the commercial real estate market today is something that has some different behavior than what we saw during the financial crisis. There's a tendency that people have. To always fight the last war. It's not just real estate issues. It's you know through human behavior. You look at the last bad event that happened, and you make inferences from that to something that you expect might be bad today. And so, a lot of folks in the industry that I talked to, their only experience with the recession was the global financial crisis. Either they started just beforehand, or they came into the industry after. Myself,、uh, you know, I've got three of these under my belt. From the early '90s downturn、mm-hmm. to the internet bust to the global financial crisis, I guess four if we count the current crisis. And so, you know, the commercial real estate market behaved differently in every one of these, with different forces driving the downturn and different opportunity sets for investors and and lenders coming out of the downturn. So the major difference between the market today and the market during the financial crisis. Was that going into the downturn, we had a much more diverse pool of lending driving the market on the way up. If you go back to the period from say 2003 to the early 2007, almost 60% of all lending 
was driven by the CMBS market. There were life insurance companies that were asking the question, should we even be in the business of making commercial real estate loans? Because they're being outcompeted by CMBS lenders who are making very aggressive loans in terms of very high LTVs and low rates. So that experience in the last downturn, that's not what we're seeing today. There was a much more diverse set of lenders. Here's why this is important. Imagine you got a stool and you have only one big leg under the stool. If you kick that leg out, you're going to fall. <laughs> if you've got seven or eight little legs and you lose one of them, yeah, it might wobble a bit, but if you've got seven legs still, the stool can stand up. So that's the difference between the market now and then. And that's having an impact on how owners of properties behave. People are surprised that we haven't seen many transactions with big price declines. There are a few. Uh, there's some notable hotel deals in Manhattan that have had 40% plus uh, declines in, in prices. But if you look at all hotels that have sold across the United States, there's still some liquidity in some of the smaller hotels in the secondary and tertiary markets. You go to places like Tulsa, Oklahoma or St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, you don't have the same kind of credit constraints, the same kind of social distancing restrictions that have hampered deal activity in the bigger markets. So the prices just haven't plummeted instantly as they did in the financial crisis when 60% of the capital stack goes away, people can't refinance, right. instantly goes into special servicing, and they have to sell to whatever the market will bear. That's the difference today. There's a lot of financing still out there providing uh, refinancing to existing owners. So they don't feel the same immediate pressure to sell that they did during the last downturn, mm -hmm. that they did during the early 1990s downturn, where again, we had only one source of financing going into that downturn. It was bank lending, largely one. They were the majority lender. And then they went away because of the SNL crisis. Th them going away as an aside actually helped the CMBS market capture market share and grow. There have been a tiny little CMBS market, and then you know, the capital markets abhor a vacuum. Mm -hmm. uh, there were cash flowing properties that couldn't get refinanced, and it allowed people on the trading desks to step up and provide tons of capital to that world. So mm -hmm. you know, in a way, I view the current dislocation is safer because it's not a shock to the financial sector, mm -hmm. it's a shock to the real economy. It's a loss of jobs and consumption mm -hmm. activity, and you know all the. It's a, it's the amount of stuff you can drop on your foot, and it's not uh, about a change in the value of the price of money. Yeah. So when you mentioned about New York, I did saw a lot of articles about Hilton Times Square is closed yeah. forever. I think Edison Hotel at Times Square is closed forever. I haven't seen any hotel closed permanently in Las Vegas, but I have seen a lot of news about New York City. So I'm just yeah. thinking, is it because of the geographic locations or the number of COVID cases? Sure. So let's, let's break that down. There's a couple different threads through that question. Uh, the current downturn, it is having a, a different impact on, on different regions. There's different levels of social distancing requirements in different economies. And so that hampers restaurants, and theaters, and entertainment venues in some areas more than others. Mm -hmm. 
that ultimately will translate into differences in the income that tenants will receive in those areas and the ability to maintain these properties uh, on an ongoing basis. So hotels in New York, we don't have tourists coming in to the same degree. We don't have conferences. There's not the business activity uh, with uh, so much social distancing. And that was needed to kind of keep these giant hotel chains afloat. Yeah. So those are uh, going to face some big questions over, over the near term. Mm-hmm. Hotels in Las Vegas, another issue that they might have that the New York hotels wouldn't is just what is the nature of the capital structure? I don't know the specific details of each one, but if I have a hotel and I face a temporary, and I assume that COVID is temporary, that we will go back to, if not exactly what our previous lives were, we'll go back to something approximating our previous lives at some point. So, yeah. 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 But let's assume, let's assume I'm a hotel owner. I'd love to own a hotel. If I have deep pockets and I own a hotel as part of a corporation with deep access to the capital markets, maybe I can withstand a couple quarters of severely reduced hotel room visits every day. If I have a very thin margin for success, maybe I bought the hotel late in the cycle at a high price at uh, uh, comparatively high LTVs, I've got less room for error. Mm-hmm. So the structure of who owns what in terms of their capital stack, uh, the capital they have in reserve outside of that investment, that's important. It, having reserves it can help one when you hit uh, an unexpected downturn and the basis you bought in at also matters. So you have a combination of certain cities might get hurt more than others, with the yeah. session, but then how the individual investors executed before the downturn will matter as well for the survivability of those assets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you stumbled up my question very well. I think I was thinking about some areas will hurt more than other areas. And also you mentioned that the 90s crisis allow the CMBS market to have a huge boom. And what about this downturn? Do you see a new type of financial sources or any of the capital financial providers will become a major player in the near future because of this downturn, like the opportunities that come up of this downturn? Yeah, you know, thinking about the opportunities that come out of this downturn for folks in the lending world, If we go through this downturn and asset values reset down as things trade at a a lower basis, those lenders who step in, once we have a new floor for prices, I think they will have a much safer opportunity set for their investments. We have seen a reduction in the lending activity in the second quarter on the part of CMBS originators and on the part of the debt funds that were a lot of private equity type shops getting into the lending world. We saw a reduction from both. But at the same time, in moving into the third quarter, there's been a lot of stories about private equity shops trying to raise money to do lending. And because if you lend, let's say asset values fall 10, 15%, and then you step in afterwards and make loans against those reduced values at a more conservative LTV, that's a fantastic loan. And, and so some of those groups will step in and try and provide capital 
as we go through uh, the downturn. But it's different than the early 90s in the sense of there was a complete shutdown of bank lending from the SNL crisis. And so CBS had an opening that wasn't there before. You don't have that same kind of shutdown of lending today. There's still a lot of bank lending that's out there. There's a diversity in sources for financing to, to, in ways that was not the case during the financial crisis, in ways that was not the uh, face during the early 1990s downturn. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also, this downturn has a lot of dry powder in the system, right? Well, that's an interesting point. The, people talk about the fact that there is dry powder on the sidelines. A lot of funds raised capital uh, during the last few years. Challenge with dry powder is that once the wind picks up, it can get blown away. We saw that during the financial crisis. There was talk before the financial crisis. Well, look at all the dry powder on the sidelines. And many of the investors that had contributed money to these funds uh, asked for it back because they had the rights in the fund documentation to do that. They didn't see the opportunity set that they had originally gone in for. And and so they decided that they wanted to do something else with their money. Uh, They may have put the money into real estate funds of another type later, but it was clear that the strategies that had been outlined before the crisis were not the ones that were going to be successful after the crisis. Mm -hmm. So all that dry powder, yeah, it might find a home somewhere in real estate, but it's not going to find a home in the same type of opportunities that were presented a year ago. Uh, So it may find opportunities here still. There still is a wall of capital worldwide that wants to find some sort of safe yield, but it may not be the same type of real estate deal that would have uh, been popular a year ago. Right. Also, I think you published an article on Will Capital Analytics about U.S. is no longer the primary commercial real estate investment market for investors. They're now looking at Europe. Yeah, that article, what we looked at is just sort of the the relative scale of the market. Mm, Uh, The United States had been the largest, most liquid investment market worldwide. And uh, Europe overtook that. And and part of that is just the uncertainty in the United States was much greater than in Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Europe, the response to COVID, did a lot more to protect households. And so there was a whole chain of consumption activity from households to retailers, the retailers are tenants, and so those tenants to landlords, landlords to their lenders. It wasn't like everybody was fighting along the way to say, I'm not going to pay you because they protected households from the get-go. And so the households could still spend to some degree. They could still pay their rent. They didn't have to worry about, you know, can I make the rent payment? The landlord wasn't worrying, am I going to get my rent payment? The lender wasn't worrying, am I going to get my mortgage uh, receipts? So that, that whole chain of events was different in Europe than the United States, where it's been much more of an every man for yourself type situation. So now why don't we talk about distressed debt? This is a topic that a lot of people are interested in. And I have got emails from people in New York asking me, do you see anything in Las Vegas yet? We have seen something in New York right now. And I said, well, I haven't seen anything in Las Vegas yet. Yeah, everybody's thinking about distress because they're hoping that they can step in and buy something on the cheap and Mm -hmm. rescue uh, a property or an investor from a an over-leveraged type situation and make uh, a healthy return in being that rescue capital. The challenge 
is that the distress that's happened so far is concentrated both by property sector and by capital source. We saw a spike in distressed loans coming through in Q2. Overnight, 40 billion in newly troubled loans hit the market. The challenge is that most of those loans were in the hotel sector and the retail sector. It's not as though you can suddenly go in and buy a high quality cash flowing apartment building on the cheap by buying the debt. That's not what's happening. It's properties that are distressed for a reason. The loans are distressed because there's uh, very little income for the properties. The hotel loans are in cases where there's just very little room night traffic. And in retail, it's uh, larger properties where there's problems with the retailers themselves uh, no longer uh, acting as a going concern and, and facing challenges on their ability to pay rent. So these are you know, truly some troubled properties. The other thing about this is that what's hit so far are loans that were originated for the CMBS market. Under the terms of a CMBS lending, when a property can no longer pay for the mortgage, it's turned over to the special servicer. There's very little leeway that the CMBS world has to wait for a, a landlord to scramble to figure out how they're going to uh, restructure a loan. So it goes from the CMBS pool to the special servicer, who then works with the, the property owner to see, you know, are you going to be able to bring this back into compliance or not? And then if not, then they uh, work to recover capital through a, a foreclosure process. So there's less leeway. And so when a problem hits, it's like that. Yeah. Versus bank lending, where banks have just naturally more leeway because it's a relationship with the borrower. It's not through a call center. It's an actual person they're working with. They have more leeway to try and restructure things. They also, in the middle of this downturn, have been told by their regulators that they don't have to hold as much capital in reserve relative to the assets that they've lent against. And that's a situation that was instituted to try to not make this downturn worse. Put a floor under some of this yeah. stuff. Don't force an immediate loss under the notion that you know, this downturn might be temporary. It might just be a temporary situation with COVID. Maybe we'll get lucky and we'll get a vaccine soon, you know, knock on wood. And then you know, we can go back to something like normal. So why force anybody to take a loss today? So the challenge is that the special servicer deals, it's, it's largely retail and hotel, but it's also, if you think about it, retail and hotel for CNBS was much more of a financing situation for larger buildings, mm -hmm. much more, uh, you know, the, the CNBS market uh, was more focused on some of the larger buildings in the coastal markets, uh, major malls, bigger hotels. And so you know, the investors looking for that stuff you know, it's not everybody who can write a yeah. billion dollar check for a portfolio of large malls. Maybe in the past you had to write a $2 billion check for, but even still $1 billion check is a lot of money. And so it's a smaller pool of folks that might be able to take advantage of some of the distress that's already happened. Now moving forward, you know, the longer the pandemic drags out and the longer the economic impact from the social distancing medicine is out there limiting things, 
then it might spread to other types of lenders and to smaller properties and smaller markets. Mm-hmm. But so far, the distress opportunities that are out there, it, it just in the second quarter hit a lot of distressed loans. But we haven't seen that translate through to too many distressed sales yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hotel, maybe a little bit more. 8% of the market in Q2 was distressed sales of hotel properties. Uh, other property types, it's still a very minimal component of the sale volume tied up in distressed properties. Part of that's timing. It takes while. To, it takes a while to kind of move these things through the system. And part of it is just the restrictions. It was hard to get any deals done for a while when everybody was sitting on their couch and doing Zoom calls from there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you mentioned distressed sales. And I also remembered in the webinar, you talked about there's a mismatch between what sellers asking and what buyers willing to pay. And that is also one of the reasons why we haven't seen a lot of distressed sales right now. Yeah. It's why we haven't seen many sales in general. Deal volume fell off the cliff after March. The last trip I made was to a conference called PREA, Pension Real Estate Association. It was in early March in Los Angeles. And then I got back to New York. I was in my office on March 9th and I've not been back since. And so that's that's been... uh, (laughs) And the world has been different since. But deal activity fell dramatically after. And it fell dramatically because buyers and sellers just have different views of where the world is. If I'm a buyer and I see all the uncertainty around what's going to happen next with the economy, what's going to happen with the pandemic, I don't want to take a risk that I pay top dollar for an asset. And then to keep the investment alive, I have to keep funneling cash from my reserves into this investment just to keep paying the mortgage until the economy recovers. If I'm going to buy an asset, I want a huge discount just to cover the risks I'm taking on. Owners who face that situation, maybe they want to take an asset to market, but they know that nobody's going to pay them what they think it's worth, given what they had paid for it a year ago, say. So they may do nothing as long as they're liquid and have enough cash flow in place and and as long as they have a lender who's willing to refinance them if they need to. And that's the situation we have today. There are a diverse set of lenders that are out there. There are still banks that are active. There are you know, fewer originators in Q2 2020 than there were in Q2 2019, but not tremendously so. It's mostly a reduction in hotel loan originators. So there's some competition for that refinancing business. And so sellers, they are able to hold a reservation price for a bit. And as you know, sellers have one view and buyers have another view, you know, they go apart on where they want to be on price. And so the, the adjustment mechanism isn't price, it's deal volume. Got it. And what comes next? Or some of the opportunities that you're seeing and what are some of the things you think will happen in the near future of this pandemic? Yeah, what comes next is a big question. And and some of it is that people just don't know. In part, it depends on how quickly we can move out of this period of social distancing. Mm -hmm. There's some calls to end it all immediately that would have some challenging health uh, consequences for many Americans. You know, the longer you know, we hold up in this social distancing situation, though, it also has consequences uh, for, the, for the economy. So there's, 
you know, a lot of back and forth on that issue. And of course, it also gets tied up in politics because of where we are in the political cycle. So it's, it's a challenging time. If we're lucky, maybe we could have a working vaccine in short order and sometime next year, parts of the economy can start to open up a little bit more. Uh, at that point, I think we'll start to see lenders on the bank side start to take a heavy look at their portfolios and try to understand, okay, we're through it now. What is viable before COVID and how does it look after COVID? Because even though we go back to normal at some point, you know, let's say vaccine comes and early next year, everybody's getting vaccinated, doesn't mean that everything goes back to normal immediately. We saw 31% contraction in GDP, and there's a number of businesses that have closed permanently. And just walking through my neighborhood here in Brooklyn, all masked up and hand sanitized and everything, you know, there are uh, local retailers that just couldn't make a go of it and have shut down. And so, you know, that's something that doesn't correct itself right away. And so it's going to take some time for new businesses to form and for some of the tendencies to be rebuilt. So there's probably going to be ongoing distress as some of the income side has been challenged. I know you just published an article today about institutional investors. Right. Um, seeing opportunities in this downturn. Do you want to talk about that article as well? Yeah, it's interesting. Deal activity is down across the board. You know, people are just not buying as many properties because of that buyer-seller disconnect I mentioned. But if you think about the investment that people are doing, they're putting some money to work buying properties, but then you know they're also at the same time selling some properties. So to look at the total flows of capital into commercial real estate, I broke down the composition of buyers and looking at how much each category, whether it's REITs or private investors or cross-border investors, kind of users of space, and then institutional investors, kind of the equity funds, the professional investment managers, and, and just netting out what they're buying versus what they're selling. And when you look at it from that perspective, those institutional investors are buying more properties than they're selling. So uh, you know, even though their total acquisition activity is down, they're still expanding the exposure of their portfolios to commercial real estate. But there's some elements of it as well that are interesting, just looking at uh, there's some malls that are in progress for selling where some JVs of uh, some cross-border and institutional money are trying to sell some malls in a, a distressed situation. And there are, are some institutional investors stepping up to buy some of these distressed assets. Uh, and I think that's the next wave of what we'll see. We will see people stepping in to try and buy distressed assets and try and ride a wave of recovery in the values of those assets. The challenge is understanding when's the right time to buy in given you know, the point in recovery. How strong will that recovery be? Because it's not an immediate return to everything just like normal before. Some of these tenants are gone for good. And do you have enough capital behind you to buy something and ride this bumpy period between now and when something's stabilized to have a go of it? So it's not something that everybody's jumping in on because there's so many uncertainties, but we're starting to see that some institutional investors have pursued big deals in that space. 
Thank you so much, Jim. That was a great interview. Anything else that you would like to add? No, but I can't wait to get to Las Vegas next and uh, especially see the Raiders Stadium. Uh, Yeah. Maybe next year. Yes, they just opened last month. They had their first home game. We won the first home game, but it's not open to the public yet. It's only for the team to play. And then I think the Sphere. Do you know about the spheres? A joint venture between Las Vegas Sense Corp and Madison Square Garden. It's okay. the world's most high-tech performance venue right behind the Venetian Hotel. Interesting. Yeah, that one's currently under construction. And then we also have the Resorts World, a $5 billion hotel construction on the strip right now. They're opening in summer 2021. And that one is the most expensive hotel ever built in Las Vegas history. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a risky time for some of that, but hopefully hopefully it works out and we can kind of go back to normal and people can take vacations. Yeah, I, I miss all of my friends too. I, I really want to visit New York for all of these conferences. And I also wish my friends in New York would come to Vegas for all right. of these conventions as well. And we also have another hotel in downtown Vegas opening in five days. It's called the Circa. Um, 777 rooms in downtown Las Vegas on the Fremont Street. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that I remember seeing that under construction on uh, my last visit. That's mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting the way the, the downtown area is being revitalized. Yes, downtown is. I think Circa is the newest hotel in downtown since like the 80s or the 70s yeah. of Las yeah. Vegas. So it's always exciting to see new constructions, new developments in an old area that they're doing a lot of redevelopment. Yep. Right. All right. Thank you so much, Jim. And oh, yeah. thank you so much for being my guest. Hey, thanks for the time. Once again, thank you so much, Jim. And that is the end of today's episode. Please share this episode to LinkedIn and tell your friends and colleagues to subscribe to the show. For those of you who wrote a review on Apple Podcast, your review means so much to us. Thank you so much for all of the wonderful reviews and I will see you in the next episode.